Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Hedden-Gallagher. In this episode, I'm going to share with you excerpts from three speakers who are part of the year-long Engineering the Anthropocene lecture series that began in the fall of 2019. This collaboration between the schools of engineering and humanities, arts, and social sciences at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute focused on how climate change is impacting our world and what can be done about it. The first speaker we will hear from is Sachem Hawkstorm, leader of the Scaticoke First Nations. He is also his tribe's key representative at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. In this excerpt, Hawkstorm describes how Indigenous peoples are on the front lines in the battle against climate change, and he explains the true meaning of water. My name is Sachem Hawkstorm. I am uh, the hereditary leader of the Scaticoke First Nations peoples. Anybody know about Scaticoke? So we're right next to the town of Scaticoke, right? So in 1676, we signed a treaty called the Witnanmak Treaty in the town of Scaticoke. Scaticoke means uh, literally the mingling of waters, the coming together of streams, or the coming together of people to survive the King Philip War, to, to survive the massacres that were happening to our people. So all of the remaining tribes of New England were pushed into Rensselaer County. It ended up being about 5,000 people or something like that um, altogether after millions and millions of our people were slaughtered. And then we formed a treaty in 1676 with Governor Andros of New York, the Governor of New France, and the Governor of New England over here in, in Old Scaticoke. In the time period from 1676 to 1736, we were pushed all the way from here to the border of New York and Connecticut, where we have a reservation and in the 60s, they burned all our houses down on the reservation. And now there's only four people living left on the reservation. Um, our land was whittled down, even on the reservation, down 400 acres of rock. They've taken all of our tillable land. Uh, one of the most prestigious prep schools in the country, uh, Kent School, is on our reservation. And the power plant is on the southern end of the reservation that flooded out our graveyards and basically took thousands of acres down there. And they filed a quick claim deed in 2005 or 2004 because they have a vested interest in the property. Our people are scattered. Our people have been removed by the Indian Removal Act, um, where they, they were pushed out to Wisconsin, uh, removed from the reservation to inner cities because you could not be in the surrounding towns and you could not get food. You could not get school, you could not have any kind of way of life. In 2004, uh, we were able to get federal recognition. Federal recognition is when the federal government decides to recognize you as a people, right? Um, I call it the Indian welfare system. Um, but we lost it in a year. Um, we have the most documented tribe in the country. We have one of the oldest reservations in the country. Uh, this country was established in 1776. Our reservation was established in 1736. Without our help, you know, this country might have been speaking French. <laughs> um, so interestingly enough, uh, we lose federal recognition mostly because of gaming rights. Because 
Connecticut has a gaming compact with with the other two tribes in Connecticut. And if we got federal recognition, whether we wanted to do gaming or not, we'd have the right to do gaming, and that would go against their gaming compact because we wouldn't be locked into their contract. So it's all about them. So that's scattered. Um, I did a lot of study and I did a lot of uh, understanding um, where things went wrong with our people um, and trying to figure out different ways to, to fix it. Everybody's so locked into the fact that they need federal recognition. Uh, to me, um, I don't need your recognition. I know who I am, right? Our people were recognized by George Washington. Our people were, <laughs> were recognized by our own people. Our people have been here a lot longer than these people, right? So I don't need their recognition. That's self-determination. That's something you learn about in our work at the United Nations. So a lot of our focus with the Scatter Group is on solutions, right? What are we going to do? You know, it's not about like, I want my rights. I already have my rights. I know them, right? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about the climate crisis? What are we going to do about sustainability? Where are we going to get our foods when the floods come? You know, all most of our foods are coming from low-lying floodplains. What are our solutions? Where, what are indigenous peoples doing about it right now, all over the world? One of the big problems, the projects that we're working on, is land reclamation. Right. So, in New York State alone, there's 14.9 million acres of so-called protected forest lands, right? None of it is being protected by indigenous peoples. All of it gets broken in, into local municipalities who have to take care of thousands of acres of, of forests, right, with very, very limited product. So they end up getting thirty dollars to $50,000 a year for, to protect thousands and thousands of acres of forests. So what it becomes is mostly volunteer trail maintenance and sign work. Nothing to fix the environments that are broken. People come to New England all the time and they're like, wow, it's so beautiful, you know, I'm here in the fall, look at all the colors, they look so nice. There's no biodiversity, right? There's no foods left in our forests. Why? Because of the charcoal industry, because of the iron industry, right? This was massively wiped out. And nothing was done to bring these foods back. Right? So then, if you look at the animals, they all evolved at the same period, same rate as our forests, for 100,000 years or longer, right? including the people. And in less than 100 years, it was all wiped out. So all of these animals, who adapted to the foods that have been here for like through, throughout time now no longer have these foods. Now people no longer have these foods. When we talk about all these animals dying out, we talk about the bees dying out, we talk about the problems where you have massive amounts of ticks but nothing to change, nothing to mitigate that, right? It's because it's off balance, everything's completely out of whack, right? I just spent a month down in Brazil, in the Amazon. I just got back. Um, and when you, when you go from the Amazon to here, 
I walk five steps into the Amazon jungle, and all I hear is animals. All I hear is wildlife. And people are so, it's so easy to just become accustomed and normalize things, right? You walk into the woods and hear a couple birds, and you're like, oh my god, this is so beautiful, and this is the animals, right? I can look through the woods right now for a mile and not see an animal. I might see one squirrel, might see two birds floating around. That is not balance. That is not how it's supposed to be. Yes, this is what we're used to. Yes, this is this is what we're accustomed to and what we trained our minds to believe is okay, but it is absolutely not. And I could walk five steps into the Amazon jungle, which is the same age as our jungle is supposed to be. And all I hear is animals, I can drown in it. That's what it was here. That's what it was here. We have to fix this problem. And now, right now, they're trying to wipe that out down there. Right? And indigenous peoples are on the front lines getting murdered, literally, to stop this that's trying to save your life. It, it's all connected. There is not like isolated ecosystems on the planet, it's all connected. So, what do we do about it? Right? We have to take over the land and reintroduce these foods. So that's what we're very passionate about. Land reclamation, bringing back agro-food forestries. How are we looking at how we're getting our foods? Right? We changed how we interact with our food. People are getting sick. Everybody's eating the same food. Everything you need to survive grows in your environment. The water collects all the metals, minerals, irons, everything that you need to survive in that environment. But if we're all drinking the same filtered water, you have to add all these minerals and minerals to your to your foods. But we're not programmed to do that. We're programmed to look at labels, buy from the stores, and not realize that you can eat your yard, <laughs> you can eat in, in your woods, but that's because you They've taken it, separated you from it, and then and then created this false sense of reality that we're all looking at. It's all online. So so anyway, this is part of this is what we're very passionate about: bringing these this knowledge back, bringing these people back out of the cities, bringing my people back out of the cities, bringing our people back together, having indigenous-led movement, but working with local communities that are doing this work. Right? This is what we have to protect. We have to not just protect this, not protect a broken ecosystem, but fix it, right? Think about different ways how we're, how we're thinking about language. What is water? What is water? Water is life, right? Water is life. It's not H2O. And if we let them convince us that water is H2O, then the argument is always going to be how much can we poison the water and still filter it back to H2O when you cannot survive? On H2O, all life comes from water, carbon, and heat, not carbon, heat, and H2O. Thank you. Next up is Kari Marie Norgard, a professor of sociology from the University of Oregon who studies the social organization of denial, especially regarding climate change. In this clip, 
Norgard discusses why individuals may feel overwhelmed when it comes to global warming, and then considers ways to get engineers excited to help solve problems of the Anthropocene. If you want to respond to climate change, just giving people more information alone is not the answer. Nor is it just that people don't care. And trying to make people care is also not the answer. We need to have this more sociological analysis of what happens when disturbing information is out there. But of course, the next question always is, well, so then what do you do? If you know these things, if you know that we have a capacity to, um, to when we feel guilty, when we feel helpless, uh, to really shut down. Um, if we know, we know this for many, many social problems. We know this, we know that we have a profound capacity for, um, for denial, and yet we have this very serious problem. And so how can we mobilize ourselves? One of the reasons I think people feel incredibly, um, uh, or not, have not been able to mobilize, is we have like no collective discourse about what we can be doing. So that we can have like a spirited discussion even about doing this or doing that, you know? Do, uh, do, we, um, do we all need to be um, putting our, our, our bodies on the line in direct action? Or does it make sense for some of us uh, to be working on city climate action plans? And do we, should we or should we not be um, putting through any climate legislation? And is cap and trade the right approach? You know, we don't talk about the variety of um, individual, cultural, and political economic mechanisms which, which are out there, actually, um, for social change. We don't really talk about them. Instead, when we think about climate change, there's been a pretty rich discourse about whether or, what, or not it's happening. And that's because very powerful, uh, economically well-funded political entities have been able to steer the political discourse in the United States and increasingly around the world in that way. Um, if you talk about, for individuals, there's, there, I mean, what, what we have around climate change is mostly a discourse around individual action. Um, individuals, you know, I'll, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, drive a car. You know, and, you know, is it better for me? You know, how much does a vegan lifestyle matter? You know, that's like the level of the climate discourse. And, you know, I'm not saying those things aren't important for sure, uh, how we eat. And how, uh, how we transport ourselves matters, but we're having that at really primarily just at the individual level. Climate change is a collective problem. It is a problem that's about um, industrial society. It's about our burning of fossil fuels at a very large scale, not just at the individual scale. Again, the social fact, we, where, your, where your fuels come from is not something when you flip on the light. You can decide to flip on the light or not as an individual, but you don't get to decide what fuel source you have as an individual, right? It's a much larger collective. And then um, how we can be really mobilizing. Okay, if, if the story that climate change is, um, you know, that humans are, um, it makes us feel guilty, it makes us feel helpless, and it makes us afraid about the future, um, and so we don't want to think about it. Is there something that would make lots of people excited about working together and thinking about, um, about uh, our world and, how to, and caring for it and, and getting engineers like you all excited about, um, about devising and using your brilliant good minds um, in the service of all kinds of human problems, which I'm sure is one of the main reasons um, that many of you have gone into this. The, 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 the idea of the Anthropocene, the idea that we actually matter for other species, each of you actually matter, and your actions matter, and that you 
might have a responsibility not only to yourself to become financially secure, uh, to your parents, to your children or future children, but that you have a responsibility to a community and the community that includes other beings um, is something that um, that I think people increasingly see as the idea of, the, of, a, of an opportunity that can come out of the Anthropocene. So if we realize that things have been, uh, we are quite off course, that we are really um, reached a point where the way we've been doing things as smart as it has been is not been not smart in other ways, um, that, that we have an opportunity to change course. The challenge of, that we're in now, you know, is really profound. And it can be very meaningful to be involved. And there is that expression that action is the best antidote for despair. For all of you that have um, your engineering um, minds, you're you know, really brilliant, uh, you can, it can be very, very meaningful to be involved in um, doing something that's putting something towards um, human, helping human lives. Instead of thinking about climate change as a negative, I mean, it's a, it is a scary thing, it does require changing course, but there are many, many positive opportunities and many moments of individual connection and so forth um, along the way. And so um, I wanna hold out that the idea of the Anthropocene, the idea that we as humans are really a part of natural systems, it, is it can be about healing. Finally, we hear from Tona rodriguez Nikel, an associate professor of civil engineering at Cal State Los Angeles. When rodriguez Nikel came to campus and an auditorium full of engineering and science-minded students, he explored some of the ways engineers in particular can shift their actions and systems to be more sustainable. Why not change the world? Because it's not easy. And it's not easy specifically because, okay, I'm an engineer and I've, well, I'm a student, I've studied engineering, these are all great ideas, I'm gonna go out into the workforce and realize that I can't really do anything. The way that things currently work in engineering is that engineers solve problems but leave the use of those solutions, uh, the products design, to others. Whether that use is good or bad, that's kind of not really conceived of in the world of engineering. So let's then find ways to act. Maybe this means as a private firm simply exercising greater judgment in the jobs that you accept and taking a hit to your, to your margin. Maybe it means advocating for better solutions with willing owners. This is something that is talked about a lot in the world of sustainable design and resilient design. There's some owners that are actually willing to listen and actually are willing to spend the extra money. So in those cases, advocate for better solutions. Have those arguments. Be able to make the case. It might mean doing pro bono work. If there's a major infrastructure project, get in there with the communities that are affected by that and do pro bono work for them to help inform the dialogue with technical expertise and help them understand the ramifications. Get into the policy realm, but I say be careful with professional associations. I worked on the Sustainability Committee of the American Concrete Institute, and there are some interesting mental gymnastics involved when talking about a product that is a major contributor to carbon emissions. And I'm not saying that that in and of itself makes it an unacceptable solution, but it's definitely true that it's a major contributor to carbon emissions. 
within the context of a, a professional society whose job it is to promote as much concrete use as possible. And there were some amazing people in there that really were genuinely interested in coming up with good, responsible solutions. But there also was a current that tried to sweep some of that under the rug and say, how, how do we promote concrete? So unfortunately, I'm not, I don't sh I'm not sure if the policy wings of our professional societies are the best way to advocate in the policy realm. In either case, uh, we want to think about ethical frameworks that frame this action, because really, the only ethical framework we have in the words of, of a very old book called Small is Beautiful by Schumacher, he says that we live in an era in which the economy is the main arbiter of morality. And all it takes for calling a solution uh, impossible is to say that it's uneconomical. And so we need a larger dialogue about how we can frame the issues in a way that will support this kind of action beyond the economy. And all of these approaches are going to take that exercise of practical wisdom, that action reflection loop that hopefully you all will be developing as you go out into the world. Thank you. For further information on the speakers and videos of the presentations, visit cee.rpi.edu slash climate. Engineering the Anthropocene is a cross-disciplinary collaboration between the Department of Science and Technology Studies and the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. The series is supported by the Basuda Living and Learning Community and the Vollmer Freeze Fund. Thanks for listening.